Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conservation Realist, the podcast featuring real conversations for better conservation. And I think that does get easier to say with time. Uh, Today is episode three, and for this, I had a fantastic conversation with Brooke Tully. She is a specialist in conservation marketing and brings expertise from the corporate advertising world into the conservation realm. Uh, I really learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm confident you will too. And I first learned about Brooke when I was on the Society for Conservation Biology's Disciplinary Inclusion Task Force. And unfortunately, I had to fade away my involvement toward the end of last year before it completed, but it was a really great project to examine how the Society for Conservation Biology could increase its inclusion of different different disciplines, among other forms of identity. And uh, I encourage you to check out their website and, and see what's come of that. And uh, I was really fortunate that the group I was in got to meet with Brooke because she was working on another aspect of this project. And when I just kind of cold emailed her saying, hi, you met me, one of the many little faces on a group Zoom call maybe a year or so ago, uh, could I interview you for this little podcast that I'm starting? And she really graciously said yes. She's got an excellent website, brooktully.com, and there is a treasure trove of blog posts sharing different insights and ideas uh, related to conservation marketing. And I've personally, I've personally really enjoyed reading through them. I wish I could read them all at once. And the website also has some information on various workshops and courses that she leads including the Making Moves course, which is closed for this year, but keep your eyes peeled for 2024. And uh, yeah, I really appreciated speaking with Brooke uh, in particular because I've been very uncomfortable for a long time with how the conservation community talks about behavior change. I've always felt like there's a tinge of... uh, (laughs) Kind of a paternalistic condescending note to it and I, I wish that there were more thought as to okay who is exactly um, is in power here who is the one deciding what the proper behavior is and and what right do these people have to impose those beliefs on others or to manipulate others into following those beliefs and at the same time I'm I'm not naive Uh, I I do know that behavior change is necessary pretty much in every conservation instance. And uh, so I've kind of had to sit with that discomfort. I I try to avoid using the term behavior change with with that kind of connotation. I try to be mindful of it. But I really appreciated this conversation with Brooke because she was able to kind of acknowledge the kind of icky feeling I had whenever I was in a conversation about behavior change. And she was able to reframe it in a way that made me a lot more comfortable and and I think more properly represented what we are actually trying to do when we talk about convincing people in other countries to change their behavior. I also really enjoyed that this conversation touched on capitalism 
And while we might not all be thrilled with what capitalism unfettered has has wrought on modern day society, there are, of course, many valuable lessons to be learned from it, learned from it. And this is something that Brooke has firsthand experience with uh, as her work has brought her into the corporate realm, as well as into the conservation, nonprofit and government agency realms. And something that she mentioned that really resonated with me was how in the corporate world, kind of well-rounded skill sets are really important. And having those practical skills, those project and people management skills are just part of a relatively smooth running operation that she's not seen very often in conservation. And that really resonates with what I've seen, both from my experience uh, working in conservation, as well as from my observations and evaluations of other projects and organizations. And it also made me think a little bit about this fantastic book, The White Man's Burden, uh, subtitle, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good, by William Easterly. And in this book, he touches on how humanitarian and development nonprofits and intergovernmental groups can improve how they operate by approaching projects more how corporate entities do in, in, in several ways. I mean, that's just one of many powerful points from this book. And I'll actually be talking at greater length about another one of his books called The Tyranny of Experts uh, later in the season. Uh, we also talked about how conservation could learn from public health experiences in, in marketing and messaging, for better or for worse. And of course, we touched on you know the U.S. experience with COVID pandemic messaging. And I was really interested to hear Brooke's thoughts on, on what she observed and learned from that. I think the theme of this conversation would be communication is everything. And I don't know how many of you have seen Fleabag, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's show, uh, but at the end of the second season, uh, one of the episodes features a pretty intense scene uh, at a salon where there's this line (laughs) that goes, hair is everything. And so that's how I'm hearing communication is everything. It's hard to think of an aspect of a conservation project that wouldn't benefit from better communication. And all that falls within the purview of what what Brooke thinks about in her work. So uh, yeah, please enjoy. And so let's hear a clip of the song The Green Touch by Somo Twin, Zian Tet, and Min Min in Myanmar. And we'll dive in. All right. Um, yeah, so thank you again for spending time and, and sharing with me and, and others, you know, some of the valuable lessons and insights I think you have to offer. 
Um, I'll be really candid. I kind of ignored the field of conservation marketing for a long time. My background was like in ecology and then social ecological research. And then as I got more into working with communities on the ground, for me, I always thought conservation marketing was like slick pamphlets mm -hmm. and like two page documents and kind of that that side of the conservation field that I would kind of roll my eyes at. Sure, yeah. But then I was like, oh no, this is really, really important and it has great potential to be really powerful and, and useful. Yeah, and there is, you know, kind of a difference between like nonprofit marketing, which can be slick, right? It's like promoting the nonprofit organization itself. It can be very donor centric, which gets even like more slick uh, at those levels. And conservation marketing, which is really, you know, community engagement and outreach and falls under so many alternate names too, whether it's behavior change communications or social marketing. Conservation marketing is probably one of the newer terms, um, which adds to a little bit of the confusion and the fact that people maybe are introduced to it a little bit later. So one thing that I kind of struggle with is the connotation of certain terms we use in conservation. And, and one that comes up a lot is um, behavior change. And I struggle with it because I know there's value to it. I know that's actually what's happening or what the goal is, but there is this kind of power dynamic, this kind of neocolonial air to it, kind of like we're environmental missionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how conservation can approach behavior change in a respectful way and in a responsible way. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's a term I've struggled with too, especially more recently in my career. I definitely think of our studies the academic side, the theoretical side, as understanding the process of behavior change, how humans go through it, why humans go through it, what tends to be the patterns of that process. But I don't like to think about the implement implementation of it being we are changing people's behaviors. Um, and I, I wonder if maybe we've just connected those terms or those aspects of the work maybe too closely. Um, I tend to think of it a lot more as motivating people to take action or start that process or journey of changing behaviors. And I think you'll see my website and a lot of my work reflects that language. Um, because you're right, the behavior change term is very top down, very heavy handed. And it's kind of what like enforcement has been trying to do in our field for like decades and it doesn't really work. Um, so I like to think of it much more as making compelling persuasive arguments for why it's worth one's time and energy to try to do something different and guiding the audience in a direction where they can make better choices if they, upon their own agency, choose to make those choices or start that process and journey. So it's not by force, it's not heavy handed, it's doing a better job of presenting these options to make them interesting, compelling, exciting, even fun if we can. Yeah, no, I like that. It definitely shifts it more <clears throat> um, from propaganda to you know information. And I love the, that you use the word agency. 
mm-hmm. um, and kind of presenting the information um, and hopefully some kind of pathway to action that the audience can choose to follow if, if they deem it, you know, the, the path that they would like to take or that seems prudent or productive for them to take. Well, and I think, you know, study after study is showing us that increasingly people know that there is an issue and know of the issues or at more extreme levels are feeling extreme anxiety about the issues. They're not sure what to do with that energy, with that information, with that knowledge, or even with those emotions that they're feeling. And I don't know that we've done enough to kind of chart that path for them. And I feel like that's where we need to start doing more of our work is we know you're feeling these things. We know that you want to channel these feelings towards something that's real, that'll have impact, that's going to make a difference. And these are the things you can do to achieve those goals. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I've also found is in in my work with communities, you know, which is pretty heavily interview based. Mm -hmm. um, I find that the communities are much more I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise. They're much more sentient and aware than I think conservation projects, some conservation projects at a certain level often give them credit for. They're not like these empty vessels who are ignorant, who need to be shown the light. You know, they they often are more aware of the problems in a more nuanced way than any external actor could be. And, you know, my, my area of focus has often been marine megafauna conservation, dolphins and, and sea turtles. And they care. A lot of places they care. They like these animals, even if they don't directly derive any economic benefit from it. You know, they're, they're not these kind of basic primitive beings who only think about how much fish I can catch. You know, there's, they are rich people. You know, there are people with rich lives, rich thoughts, uh, just like anyone else. And I think that taking that into account is a huge step towards more effective and and more engaging communication with them. Yeah, we definitely, and I say we like in conservation, have a history of almost demonizing our audiences and not even thinking of them as audiences, right? They're the problem. Um, and it's all, been all this focus about like fixing this problem, addressing this problem, which are humans. And Yet we also need humans to get to the solutions, to make things better, to innovate new solutions. And, you know, even just having that that shift in how we view the communities that we work with as, you know, partners in solutions, I, I think will immediately just go a longer way in engagement, in traction, in buy-in and in sustainability of the programs. Yeah, exactly. And so this touches on another question I have for you. We've already talked about some of them, but what are some of the top missteps you've seen in conservation messaging? Well, I did write some down because otherwise (laughs) that'll just take up the rest of our time here. Okay. I think the first one is not keeping our audience in mind. And this is, pretty much a common misstep in any form of communication is I'm just saying what I want to say in the way that I want to say it and not taking that pause to consider who am I saying this to and 
how can I reframe what I want to say in a way that's going to resonate with them most powerfully or most compellingly? Um, so I think, again, just not taking that pause of a, who am I talking to in mind before you kind of launch into something. The second one comes back to charting that path forward is I think we, I feel like we still spend too much time teaching and not enough time guiding. Uh, and maybe there's sort of a fine line between those two, but there, I think on the receiver end, it's a big difference. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm not just disseminating information or telling you all the details about an ecosystem or a species, but I'm telling you and sharing with you what you can be doing to help this ecosystem or this species. Um, and I think with connected to those is probably my third misstep is we don't think about like long-term engagement with our audience quite enough. Um, you know, when we think about conservation messages, they sort of feel like one-offs, but the real strategy and the real success in this work comes in thinking about long-term, potentially forever, sustained communication and outreach plans that build upon itself, bring in new audiences on a consistent basis, evolves as those interactions evolve, as we learn new things, as we interact with new audience members, and have that plan for it to be super long-term and not just a message here, a sign there, a social media post you know, over there, but have it be really comprehensive and holistic. And that resonates a lot with what I've seen in the field where kind of the go-to, almost like the, that checkbox on the list for communication is we'll make pamphlets or vinyl posters. And um, upon closer examination, I've worked with a group that actually interviews people on the ground, like, how can we reach you better? And they're like, no more pamphlets, please. <laughs> I'm we sure. we don't actually read them. <laughs> and um, also what you were saying about communication and going back to the idea of just kind of checking a box without investigating how meaningful that action was is people think that broadcasting a message is communication, but it's that's the first part of communication. Yeah. You also have to make sure it's received or receivable. Yeah, and there's a lot of partners I've worked with, especially government agencies, who love signs <laughs> and signs play an important role. You need them. They're a great medium to have, but they cannot be the beginning, middle and end of a story that we're sharing. They're one piece of our communication effort, but it like that tend to be like all eggs in the basket for those signs. And then there's frustration when people aren't following the rules. And it's like, this needs to be bigger than a sign. How do we engage the audience even before they get to that sign? Are there other ways to engage when they're at the moment of the sign? And then what happens later? Can we keep it going from there? Uh, so really having it, I think that's where storytelling comes into this too. Like not just the literal, what is the story, but how do we think about the beginning, middle and end of our communication efforts, almost as if it's a story. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, I I think like many other aspects of conservation, <clears throat> where there's certain elements of projects that would really be 
helpful if they were funded properly or given enough time. Uh, I often see a con uh, communication as kind of an, an afterthought uh, in the structure of, of most funded projects of most donor requirements. So what do you what do you see as kind of being the practical barriers to, to better communication and to, to implementing these um, these more long term nuanced approaches that you're talking about? Yeah, I think you hit a lot of the nails on the head right there. At, at the core to me, it's like the positions don't exist. These communication roles aren't embedded in the project or in the program teams. And so then it ends up being either someone who already has a full-time job being tasked with now also being a communicator or outreach coordinator or community liaison. And it's hard to do this work effectively when it's like the 12th bullet point on your job description, right? It's like, it's just, it requires much more energy and effort than that to be truly successful and effective. Or sometimes the role is still in this sort of general comms team who are trying to communicate you know, a dozen things as part of the organization. And again, it's having it just be this small little piece isn't what's really needed to have it be really integrated with the project and not that afterthought have it be part of like the, the upfront planning and strategy, but also to have it be that sort of long-term sustained approach. Um, a lot of that does come down to funding. I know funders aren't necessarily fans of communication roles or outreach roles. It's considered as overhead when it's such an integral piece of implementation of strategy, planning, and implement implementation. So I think those are like some of the biggest barriers is like funders aren't, it seems like not yet really willing to pay for these positions, which results in them not being added as part of that team, that project team. Um, and boy, would I love to see that change in the near future. I think that would just be so hugely impactful to have more, whether it's conservation communicators, behavior change communicators, social marketers, any of those outreach coordinators, whatever, uh, having them being part of these the larger implementation teams. I think, I mean, it's similar to other elements of, of projects, as I mentioned, that I think are just kind of disregarded. The focus is on like the main activities, but then there's often not a lot of thought to how are we paying the people who are doing those activities? How are we communicating those activities? How are we evaluating them or designing them with communities to be you know, ethical? Yeah, and I, you know, in my involvement with conservation projects, there's very few activities that aren't interacting with community members. In every single one of those activities, whether it's qualitative research, quantitative research, monitoring and evaluation of species and ecosystems, being able to incorporate some elements of more effective communication, um, you know, more persuasive communication, clearer communication, better engagement with that audience is gonna make all those individual pieces more successful too. You know, we hear these stories of, you know, hitting roadblocks during quantitative research, hitting roadblocks during technical intervention of things like fish catch monitoring. And that's because some of the groundwork of engagement and communication 
hasn't been put into place prior to that. So I think an entire project, the technical side, the monitoring side, the governance side, and the community engagement side would all benefit from having more of this work embedded in the program. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so despite all of these barriers, <laughs> what are some of the, your favorite examples of, of great conservation messaging? <laughs> the two I want to mention, and I'm mentioning them in particular because I think listeners can follow them on social media and kind of gain some insight from what they're doing. Uh, one is not conservation related, and that's charity water. It is cause-based, uh, but I would look to them to gain insight on sharing impact, showing impact of the work, and taking a more optimistic approach to their work. And essentially their work is providing water to more communities that don't have clean water. Uh, and they do just a great job of continuing to say, this is what your money is helping to go to. This is the success that we're having and help us have more and just kind of bring it to the optimistic approach, um, you know, without sugarcoating the realities of what's happening in the communities they're working in. The other one I've been really following more recently is the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. I don't know if you've been on their Instagram or their Twitter, they're hilarious. And they do such a great job of having fun with conservation, having fun with different species in a way that will engage, you know, people beyond, you know, your traditional conservationists that will likely follow, you know, this uh, social media handle in the first place. Um, and they just take a nice, light, youthful, fun approach, again, without avoiding the big issues, but just being a lot more real and authentic, yet fun with it. Um, so I think we can learn a lot from both those groups. Okay, I love that. Um, and speaking to what you said about the the charity water group, and you know they're able to have this optimistic outlook without kind of what's the phrase now toxic positivity. Um, you know, I personally don't resonate with with hugely optimistic messaging, and I also understand that pessimistic messaging is depressing. I like to operate in that in between. I'm I'm okay with receiving pretty realistic messaging. I realize that that might not be terribly common, <laughs> and so, and that's why I named this podcast Conservation Realist because I was getting tired of kind of the like hashtag ocean optimism and hope spots. And I understand why they're there, but I felt like in embracing those, we were glossing over some of the, the realities of what's happening. Um, so that's a long-winded way of asking you <laughs> in your experience, do you ever see kind of this, this middle approach of just being kind of realistic? And this is a complicated situation. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of bad stuff happening. There's some hope. It's going to be pretty hard to get to the area where those hopes are realized. Do you think that's a, an effective way at all to message, or is it is it more kind of mm, effective to go with maybe more polarized emotions? Um, I think there's absolutely room for that kind of realistic, nuanced message. I think for all of these things, it comes down to the time and the place and the who. 
Um, and depending on the audience that you're trying to reach, maybe that more you know, nuanced reality check message is a little bit further down the rabbit hole that they go down. Uh, so they've been engaged on something fun, something interesting, something new and different that they didn't know before, and then get carried to a place of, hey, this is what's going on. This is the real deal. Uh, this is what we're worried about. And hopefully then still channel to, this is how you can play a role and support. Um, some audiences, you know, if you're speaking to other conservationists, other scientists, I think you can always lean into that real deal approach. I think they're very open to that, very interested in that. Um, and I, I get your point in terms of being turned off by the optimism. And I do think we have to be careful about optimism and hope not becoming like daydreaming. And that's, that's not the point that we can just like wish for a better future. Um, the, for me, the optimism and positivity needs to be about there is still room to change the course that we're on or to adjust the course so that it's not apocalyptic. And these are the things that we have done before that's made a difference. These are the things we can do. Um, and it's almost like the optimism is sort of countering the doom and gloom where we've been for so long. I think a middle ground is helpful. And what makes it most helpful is still saying, this is what we can do. And how do we get people excited about doing those things? So it's not like, you know, these all these things, terrible things are happening, send $5 now, because that's what's going to send like skepticism, uh, the skepticism radars or flags off with our audience. It's like, how is $5 going to help this issue? Like you've told me all these nuances, you've told me it's complicated. What can I actually do? You know, and if I, if I sign a petition, what's the point of that petition? Where is it going? Who's it affecting? What have been the impacts of previous petitions you've done? You know, like I want the details to know if it's worth my time and energy. Um, so I, I think there is a space for it. I think it's kind of finding a balance and still always connecting it to a what's next kind of answer. Yeah, no, I like that. And I'm trying to be more patient with like the, the optimistic outlook. I definitely have been called grumpy by, <laughs> by some of my colleagues when we're at conferences. I'm like, oh, this, this hashtag again. <laughs> um, taking a bit of a step back, uh, I'd love to hear more about your work in other sectors. And, and maybe if you don't mind a little bit of how you ended up working in, in conservation and um, kind of what's been similar and what's been different across these different experiences. Yeah, well, so professionally, I started in the commercial advertising field. So I was, you know, working for ad agencies in the corporate world in Manhattan. And I did that work for about a decade. Um, and tr truthfully, really enjoyed it. I thought I was doing fun and cool stuff but did hit a point in my life where I felt like, is there a bigger purpose to all of this? Um, and where do I wanna put my 
energy towards in this life. Um, you know, and advertising work is, I mean, A, we're just selling stuff and we're selling a lot of stuff that people don't need or want. Um, and it's a lot of work. It's very stressful. It's long hours. It's weekends. It can be grueling. And that started to prompt that question for me of, is this what I want to put my energy towards? Um, and the answer was no. <laughs> so I had to figure out what I wanted to put my energy towards. And wildlife conservation kind of emerged as something I had always had a passion for, but didn't necessarily know that I had that passion. Um, and at that time, I made a what I called a career shift um, to work at Rare, which is a social marketing organization for conservation. And over my you know, nine years tenure at Rare, really got to understand conservation a lot more, understand community-based social marketing a lot more, and see that it was not so much a career change and more of an evolution of taking the advertising principles and the audience understanding and engagement principles from advertising and saying, how do we build that into community-based social marketing approaches. Um, and that, that had just been a joy. It's just opened so many doors kind of cognitively and professional, professionally for me. Um, and so like over a handful of years ago, I decided I want to take it on my own and explore some different methodologies for doing this work, um, some different avenues for working with other conservation practitioners um, so that basically brings me to where I am today. I'm very focused on the capacity building element of it. I don't just want to do it myself. I want everyone to be doing this. So how do I teach as many people as I can how to incorporate behavioral insights and communication strategies into their work? And I'm now forgetting your question. <laughs> I went through all of that. <laughs> I combined a few in there. Uh, yeah, I'm curious how your work in in conservation differs from working, you know, in in, in advertising before, and, and any work you might be doing for other sorts of clients. Yeah, there's some real stark differences between those two worlds, and some things that you know, you know, work can just be work no matter what. Um, I, I'm always struck in the conservation field, sustainability field, environmental field at the drive and determination of the folks working in it. You know, we talk about purpose and passion and it exists at such high levels in that work. And if you go to so many other fields, people don't think of work that way. You know, it's their nine to five. It's the thing that pays the bills. And it's not as closely tied to their identity as it is in the field of conservation. Um, and there are positives and negatives to that. Um, <laughs> you know, there's good sides and downsides of being so emotionally invested in the work that we do. Um, but certainly that's something that, you know, I didn't really see in advertising that I saw a lot more of in conservation. I have also seen, and this is sort of a wish I have for the conservation and nonprofit world, is you know, in advertising, and I think throughout the corporate world, there is an emphasis on having like a 360 degree 
you know, a set of skills that lets you wear many different hats. So it's, you know, maybe you're a creative person in advertising, so creativity is your expertise. You also need to know some project management, some budget and finance stuff, some internal communication, and have, be able to have all these different hats on at the same time. Um, what I've seen in conservation is that there is an emphasis on expertise, which is needed in a lot of cases, but almost at the expense of other really important job-related skills. Um, and I think improving things like project management skills, teamwork skills, communication skills would go a long way in individuals being successful in whatever career path they choose and in organizations altogether being more successful. Because again, you know, we were talking about, I don't know any part of a conservation project that doesn't have communication. I also don't know any part of a conservation project that doesn't have project management, budget management, teamwork, personnel management, all of those different aspects are always there. <laughs> I mean, as someone who shifted from academia to the applied realm, uh, I struggled with some of the more practical like logistics side. I mean, I was used to managing my own research projects. But I was I was good friends with the technical advisor who was essentially running the project I was on, and uh, we were also neighbors. And, and then I was really late in submitting some admin paperwork. I was like, I'm sorry, I'll get that to you. And he's like, you know what? Let's just have so and so take care of it. I was like, oh good. I mean, I'm just so overwhelmed. He's like, yeah. And then I added, and I'm not really good at it anyway. So he's like, yeah, I was gonna say that, but. <laughs> um, but all the most valuable skills and, and really insights I've gained in conservation, apart from the core of technical expertise, which, you know, of course, you benefit from getting a PhD. There's a reason people do that. Mm -hmm. um, but the more valuable insights I've gained about how to apply that knowledge have been kind of happenstance. Like I've picked them up from the people I've happened to be very fortunate to work with, from the situations I've happened to be in. And uh, I, yeah, I think it would be amazing for those things to be taught in a more sy systematic, <clears throat> in a more systematic way, just like you're trying to do with with your trainings on on communication to professionals. Yeah, and unfortunately, it leaves every practitioner having to really start with a blank page and learn those things as they go, ad hoc, based on having, you know, being lucky enough to have great teachers around you to help provide that. And it doesn't have to be such a loner approach to it. Like these things have been done before. We can take best practices from other industries and help everyone acquire those skills from the beginning. So it's not such a kind of cumbersome journey that we ask everyone to go through. Same with management, like managing people is such a transition in a career. And everyone ends up trying to figure it out on their own and they don't have to. Like there are training programs out there that organizations can incorporate in-house. And it, I mean, it just makes it so much less stressful for each staff member. But it's like, okay, I'm being supported in this transition, in this next career phase. And that means they're investing in me just as much as I've been investing in them. Yeah, that's really important. And I think that conservation 
maybe this is inaccurate, but my sense is that conservation for a long time has seen itself as a sort of different field, yep, like yep. Um, immune to the processes <laughs> that govern other sectors. And oh, because we're trying to save animals and, and plants, uh, because of that good intention, the the laws of um, not laws, but you know, like the phenomenon that govern other sectors of work don't apply to us. So right, right. yeah, like uh, learning how to properly implement a project from the from the logistics point of view, for example, um, just touching on so much of what we've been talking about here. Uh, it's it's not uh, this kind of unicorn sector because it's been run it's being run by people and it's involving people that relies on people and so i think paying more attention to that that reality um will will yield so much in terms of the effect that the field can have yeah and, and you know capitalism gets a bad rap you know for sure but all those corporations you know a lot of their financial success is built on having well-run internal systems and machines. And I don't mean like equipment machines, but like teams that work seamlessly together in the most efficient way possible, the most effective and impactful way possible. And yes, they're doing it to make more money for shareholders and whatnot. But the internal workings can be amazing. I mean, that's been some of the teams I worked on in advertising were just a joy to work with. They were organized. We knew who was doing what. We had weekly check-ins. We were, you know, able to support one another if somebody was behind on their things. And that sort of like seamless teamwork approach, I have yet to see in sort of nonprofit or government agency conservation space. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting observation. Um, I do want to ask you briefly, um, in your training of, of conservation professionals, is there something that often seems like a, a moment of surprise or something that your, your students learn that kind of prompts a big shift or a kind of a, a dawning or a realization? Is there a kind of one or a few areas where people are like, oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way before? I'm, I'm not elucidating it well, but do you kind of understand what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, the, the aha moments. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I love aha moments. Um, I've seen there's probably three junctures where I get the aha moments. Um, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm thinking of them like sequentially of when they happen in my trainings and in my course. Um, the first one happens around the behavior change goal. And that we have to break down each of these goals into the smaller steps that people are likely to take in their journey to achieve that goal. And th this is also a mindset shift. So we'll take an example of we want people to eat more plant-based meals instead of beef-based meals. And that feels like, okay, that's the behavior change goal. Boom, that's what we're going to work on. Eat more plant-based meals. But actually in that behavior journey process, there's all these steps that someone is likely to go through. You know, understanding where they can get a plant-based meal, how to cook a plant-based meal, what in the world is a plant-based meal and what isn't a plant-based meal. 
And that part of our communication job is taking them through that journey. And so our messaging may not start with eat more plant-based meals. It may start with, hey, here are the restaurants near you offering vegetarian meals. And so that's usually the first aha moment of like, we don't have to do it all at once. We can actually have a communication journey that matches this behavior change journey. Um, the second aha moment is around audiences, which we've talked about a little bit today already. And really that aha moment is you don't have to try to reach everyone all the time. And that we should start with a term that I took from Seth Godin, who's a marketing guy. Start with our minimum viable audience. The smallest number of people that we can realistically reach and persuade that would actually start making an impact. So we always go big, you know, we want general public, we want everyone to do this. And this sort of takes from that piloting to scale approach, but like what's the smallest group that we can realistically see some results among? Let's spend our energy there. Let's start that process of social change, social movements, and then grow it from there. And that ends up just being a better use of our resources, but it also helps us really wrap our head around who is this audience. The general public is just too massive. We can't really conceptualize it and certainly can't tailor messages to this you know, kind of amorphous uh, general public. Um, and the third aha is probably around the different motivators we can use to kind of spark action and change. And where I tend to see the most excitement is this idea that we can have some fun with it, right? We can make these things experiential, uh, social, even you know, just kind of fun through an engagement mechanism that brings more people in. And then our job is to like keep them in once they've come in, um, but bring more people into this conversation, into the work that we're doing, into the species we're trying to save, you know, what have you. Um, and I don't think enough people have felt like they had permission to have some fun with it. Um, and not only does it help engage their audience, but it also helps them feel a little bit refreshed about the work that they've been doing. Those are three great aha moments, which I'm sure for the participants in, are included in a a vast sea of things they're learning from the training. Yeah, those are the ones I definitely see being like, whoa, okay, I'm gonna think about this differently now, oh my goodness. That's really cool. Um, so we've talked a little bit about kind of learning from, from other sectors, which is something I've been really interested in pretty much for as long as I've started being interested in conservation. There's many other fields where there's data scarcity and uncertainty and a sense of urgency and uh, public health is one of those. And um, I am really curious to uh, hear your thoughts about what the conservation field could learn from the experience in the US uh, around messaging during the pandemic, which struck me as really confusing, uh, involving a lot of shame and fear, which you've, you've written about on your website. And I really enjoyed reading that. Uh, so I was wondering what, what your thoughts we're observing all of that. Yeah, it's definitely a lot to unpack. 
<laughs> and pandemic coronavirus messaging and continues to be a lot to unpack in that. Um, I will just plug, actually, I did write two blogs in like March 2021 about pandemic musings. So if anyone's interested in checking those out, check them out. Um, I, I go into just more depth on what we're learning about the approach to that. Um, so public health is a field that has been using social marketing and behavior change techniques for a very long time. So I do think it's a field we should be looking to as conservation is much newer to using these concepts and tools to look at how they've been using it and what they've done well and what they haven't done well. And public health has some differences to be mindful of in that personal health is very personal, um, which means also it can be very emotional because it's about our health. Um, and it's something that conservation has struggled with to make that kind of personal connection. You know, why do I care about the forest in Borneo when I'm over here in New York? So I do think there's more we can learn in terms of, and it involves some creativity. How do we make these connections between what's happening in the world, how it affects you personally, without scaring people that they're gonna die? And that's, that's the thing that'd be nice to not do that public health sometimes does. And I think smoke, smoking campaigns are like the worst examples of getting into like how this is going to affect you in the worst way possible. And a lot of those ads don't work because people are very skeptical and cynical of, you know, my smoking habit's not gonna result in that because I'm gonna counter it with my 104 year old grandmother who smoked two packs a day her entire life. Right, like it's or they treat it like a scolding elder, you know, like oh my god, like, like, like it's too earnest, so it's very yep, easy yep. to to kind of poke ridicule at it if that makes sense. Yeah, and there's a lot of like talking down to the audience and things like that, and like you said, shame and fear. Um, I do think some of the things that we can learn from, you know, the U.S. messaging and communication around the pandemic. Um, is, you know, in terms of the things they did well, there was often a nice balance between how you benefit personally from taking action, action being wearing a mask, getting a vaccine, or standing six feet away. You benefit personally, and you're doing something good for your neighbors, your community, and your family. So they sort of combine this, like, altruistic do-it-for-others with personally meaningful do-it-for-you approach. And by having both in a message, everyone can take away what means most to them. Right, so I may be more motivated by saving myself, <laughs> and that message spoke to me. I may be more motivated by saving my you know, aging parents, and the message still spoke to me as well. So it, it helped kind of bring more people into that message by not just doing one or the other. Um, I think we can also be prepared for, and this certainly happened in coronavirus and pandemic, the backlash effect. Uh, and the social science term is reactance effect. Don't tell me what to do. And that's essentially, you know, the, <laughs> the, the core of that, like, human truth. We don't like being told what to do. Uh, and some people are fine with it, and some won't be. 
Um, so when our messages are very directive, expect that we'll have some backlash. So either that message has to be that strong and then we have to figure out how do we manage that backlash effect or we can find a way to have it not be so heavy handed. Um, I do think some of the other things we can learn and some of these are sort of silly and, and funny is you know, I've worked on a lot of wildlife viewing projects like stay 50 feet back from sea turtles or stay 150 feet away from dolphins. And humans can't get six feet right. <laughs> so like we could not figure out how to be six feet away from another human being. There were so many materials explaining what six feet looked like <laughs> to the point where we just put stickers on the ground and said, just stand here. <laughs> and the other human needs to stand at that other sticky dot on the ground. And I think that's just reality, right? So when we are talking about distances, we're going to have to make it so easy to understand what that distance truly means in the real world. Because if we can't get six feet, forget about 150 feet. Just forget about it. Um, the other things that I saw is fatigue. We got really tired of the messaging. And even though sending the messages got tired of sending the messages. And we've had two, three years of this. Um, I don't know the perfect solution for that, but I think if we have to do something that's that focused over that sustained of a period of time, fatigue just has to be in our mind. How do we not just exhaust people to the point where they're just turning our messages off entirely? Um, and, you know, claiming that it's over way before it's over because they're just tired of it. Um, and in our work, we're going to encounter that. We're you know, at the first stages of probably exhausting people talking about climate change. So how do we keep this conversation? How do we keep this pressure going without exhausting people so much that they no longer want to be in that conversation? So lots to, lots to unpack from the pandemic. I could go on from there, but those are some of the, the highlights. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Um, I mean, as I, as I mentioned to you in your email, I was revisiting your website and I was like, I want to read everything. I want to read all of these blog posts at once. <laughs> A lot of content. <laughs> it is, it is. And it's, it's, it's good content too. Well, um, thank you so much, Brooke. I really enjoyed this. And again, really appreciate your time. Um, I very rarely like become such a vocal fan of someone. Again, maybe going back to my my, my grumpy tendencies, <laughs> I'm always like, okay, well, where, when am I going to learn something about like this person's work that I don't like? But like everything I've seen about your work has been really um, instructive and interesting, and and presented in a really fun way. Um, Aww, so it's been really you, nice to talk. I really appreciate you reaching out and inviting me on this podcast. Uh, I'm excited to see what you continue to develop from here. And if you do ever discover anything of my work that you don't like, please just let me know because it's probably just something I missed. <laughs> I, I don't know that that will happen, but but noted. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. 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 
โลตาโรอาลุปยอชวนสยาฤปิสวนเนตุปยองเนยาผุสินโลเลเซยลันเนลาปาจิเยกุงโกซองเนตุลาฤนายชินโลเมยาเปยาฤมาตุทะเลก